Welcome to the Drunk Scorecard. This is your host, Jesse Bernie. Guys, it's not your podcast. Stop stealing my thunder. Welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Bernie. There are so many terrible things President Trump is doing around policy, and we'll talk about plenty of those this week, but the foundation of everything Trump does is that deep in his core, he's an asshole. Okay, guys, now it's your turn. I heard poorly rated Morning Joe speaks badly of me don't watch anymore, then how come low IQ crazy Mika along with Psycho Joe came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me. She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. I said no. Trump tweeted that out Thursday morning, and no matter what you think of Morning Joe or the hosts of the show... What a god-awful thing for the President of the United States to say. To single out a woman like that and make fun of her appearance. It's so incredibly ugly and cheap and pathetic. Imagine any other president in recent times saying anything remotely like that in public. Obama? No. George W. Bush? I despise the guy, but Jesus, no. Bill Clinton, who clearly has issues with women? Not in a million years. This is our country now. We've elected a man to lead us who does this. Am I surprised by it? No. Of course I'm not surprised by it. We have known for a very long time who Donald Trump is. He's this guy. I gotta use some Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. I just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. There's no pivot. There's no change. This is who he is. Remember, even when he thinks he's being kind to women, he's being disgusting. Just this week, he said this to an Irish reporter in the Oval Office. Where are you from? Go ahead. Come here. Come here. Where are you from? We have all of this beautiful Irish press. Where are you uh, from? I'm from RTE News. The RTE. Taoiseach will know me. Oh, Katrina Perry. Katrina Perry. She has a nice smile on her face, so I bet she treats you well. <laughs> so no, I'm not surprised he wrote that gross tweet. But just because we aren't surprised by the things he does, doesn't mean we shouldn't be disgusted by them. The moment we stop doing that, the moment we start saying, well, that's who he is, nothing we can do about it, that's the moment we start to lose our humanity. The single most dangerous thing we can do for our country is allow Donald Trump to become the new normal. Because he's not just another conservative Republican. Yes, they're all awful too, and they're pushing a bill to take health care away from 22 million people, and it's an abomination. But Mike Pence wouldn't have said something like this, not in public. And yes, it, it does matter. It matters what our president says. It says something important about our country that we let this guy into the White House every single day. It matters that, except for a few statements expressing concern, his own party won't stand up to him and do what is clearly the minimum moral requirement and kick his ass out of office. Here's what Speaker Paul Ryan said about him today. Are these comments out of line? Are you talking about this morning's tweet? Yeah, Yeah, I just saw it a little bit ago. Uh, Obviously, I don't see that as an appropriate comment. I think, look, what we're trying to do around here is improve the tone and the civility of the debate, uh, and this obviously doesn't help do that. That's pathetic, and America is better than this. 
I'm not naive. I'm not saying Trump's sexism is particularly extraordinary. Women deal with this shit every single day, everywhere they go. But yes, we should expect better from the president. I'm not surprised by anything Trump says or does. I will never be surprised by anything he says or does. But I will continue to be disgusted and outraged, and I hope you will be too. This is not normal. We cannot ever, for one moment, allow it to become normal. He's not just an asshole, of course. He's also an idiot. That was clearly on display this week in the negotiations over the Senate version of the bill to take away your health care and use the money to pay for tax cuts for people who build giant gates to keep you out of their huge mansions. Trump has literally no idea what's going on. None. He has no clue about the policy details of the bill, or possibly any bill that doesn't include the words overdone stake. There were multiple reports this week that Trump has no grasp of what's in the bill. Here's one from the New York Times on June 27th. Mr. McConnell, who kept the president at a polite arm's length while he oversaw negotiations over the bill, asked Mr. Trump to arrange the meeting with all 52 Republican senators during a morning phone call, in part to show senators the White House was in fact fully engaged, according to two people with knowledge of the call. When asked by reporters, clustered on the blacktop outside the West Wing, if Mr. Trump had command of the details of the negotiations, Mr. McConnell ignored the question and smiled blandly. Listen, Donald Trump doesn't like it when you point out he doesn't know stuff. And he had some angry tweets about how he does too know all the details and he's a big league healthcare policy expert or whatever. But let's be perfectly honest. First, he did a full court press to pass the House version of the bill and then later called it mean, which is a weird thing to say about a bill you helped pass. He said he wanted more money in the Senate bill, but didn't say things like how much money or what it should be spent on, which are the kinds of things people who care about healthcare policy know. Don't forget, this was his promise during the campaign. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say, because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25%, they can't afford private. But universal health care. I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taken care of now. The uninsured person right. is going to be taken care they're of. They're going to be how? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? This is probably... Make a deal. Who pays for it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. But for the most part, it's going to be a private plan, and people are going to be able to go out and negotiate great plans with lots of different competition, with lots of competitors, with great companies, and they can have their doctors, they can have their plans. person who thinks backdoor deals with hospitals will save enough money to insure everyone in the country isn't someone who sweats the details. That's the kind of person who says one thing during the campaign and does the exact opposite when he inexplicably becomes president. And it's not like this was some secret plan Trump had all along. He probably honestly believed himself when he said he would get health care for everybody and have the government pay for it. But he's in over his head. He doesn't understand what's in the bill. He doesn't understand the legislative process. And he doesn't understand why people care so much. It's not just that he's an asshole, and as we just covered, he's an enormous asshole. It's that he's just not very smart. You know what happens when you put asshole and stupid together in one person, right? 
you usually end up with a racist. And Lord, Donald Trump is no exception. The guy doesn't put on a white hood or give Nazi salutes, but his rhetoric and his priorities have sent a clear message to the people who work for him. And that's having a very real effect on the work they do. I want to talk about two stories that show what happens when you elect a racist president. The first thing you do is you try to keep black people from voting. And these days, the best way to do that is through voter suppression legislation. It's happening all over the country. Strict voter ID laws, cutting early voting, eliminating same-day registration, reducing the number of polling places. And of course, the best way to accomplish this is to stoke fears of massive voter fraud. Don't forget, it is still the official line of this White House that 3 to 5 million people voted illegally in the 2016 election. They didn't, just FYI. But Trump created a whole presidential commission to investigate voter fraud because that's how you push voter suppression. You sow fear and distrust. It's also a pretty good strategy for winning elections, a lesson Trump learned in 2016. To run that commission, he chose Chris Kobach, Kansas' Secretary of State, and one of the most vicious opponents of voting rights in this country. And Thursday, Kobach's commission sent a letter to every other Secretary of State in the country asking for their full voter files. Are you registered to vote? They want your full name, your address, your date of birth, the last four numbers of your social security number, your party affiliation, your felony record, and your voting history. Look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think they're building a database to come in the night and arrest Democrats out of their homes. But I do think they will use this data way more than they need to model strategies to target voter suppression policies. That's a given. That's why this commission exists. Chris Kobach doesn't want black people to vote, and Donald Trump doesn't either. They're going to do whatever they can to change the law on the federal level to make it difficult as hell to get to the polls and make your voice heard in 2018 and 2020. The other story? Trump's Department of Homeland Security is starting to shift funds away from fighting domestic terrorism to focus more on fighting Islamist terrorism, which kills way, way fewer Americans. For example, DHS canceled a $400,000 grant to Life After Hate, a group that uses people who used to be right-wing extremists to convince other people to stop being right-wing extremists. They were going to use that money on more counselors and mentors, but now no expansion, meaning more people won't hear their alternative message and more people will likely turn to violence. Can you blame Trump, though? Why would he want to direct federal dollars to change the ideology of his most loyal supporters? You think he's going to support a group called Life After Hate? Hate is what got him where he is. Trump is headed to Germany for the G20 meeting next week, and the White House announced Thursday he'll meet privately with Vladimir Putin. Needless to say, they have a lot to discuss. There's Russia's military intervention in Ukraine, which has not let up despite U.S. sanctions. There's its interference in the 2016 elections, which were a severe threat to our democracy. There's the breakdown of our communications in the fight against ISIS in Syria. With all of Russia's bad actions, tough guy, alpha male Donald Trump must be preparing some pretty firm stances for this meeting. Let's see what this report in The Guardian has to say. Donald Trump has told White House aides to come up with possible concessions to offer as bargaining chips in his planned meeting next week with Vladimir Putin, 
according to two former officials familiar with the preparations. National Security Council staff have been tasked with proposing deliverables for the first Trump-Putin encounter, including the return of two diplomatic compounds Russians were ordered to vacate by the Obama administration in response to Moscow's interference in the 2016 election, the former official said. It is not clear what Putin would be asked to give in return. So Trump is asking his staff what he can give to Putin, possibly for nothing in return. I talked about this last week, but what in the hell is Trump doing? Is he really this stupid? And yes, of course he is. But this stupid? He's going to give things to Russia in exchange for nothing while he's being probed for obstructing the investigation into his campaign's ties to Russia? We all have our theories about what is driving Trump. Maybe Russia has compromising material. Maybe he just really likes borscht. Maybe he sees Vladimir Putin as a stand-in for the father who never gave him enough love and approval. But whatever it is, why would you return the compounds the Russian used to run intelligence operations? Why would you be looking to give things away instead of demanding it pull out of Ukraine, cooperate in Syria, and stop subverting our democracy? Okay, you might be depending on that subversion for your 2020 campaign, but at least the rest of it... I think Trump actually believes the Russia investigation is a hoax and fake news. He doesn't think anyone around him has done anything wrong. That may be the only explanation that makes sense. Well, that or the P-tape. Just a suggestion. If there's a complicated, delicate foreign policy Gordian knot based on disagreements going back hundreds or even thousands of years... Don't send a 36-year-old real estate scion with zero foreign policy experience who got his job by fucking your daughter to head up the solution. It's not going to work. Jared Kushner had a meeting in Ramallah with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, which an Abbas advisor described as tense. Which of course it was, because Kushner has no idea what he's doing. Kushner used the meeting to relay Israeli demands to Abbas, which Abbas saw as taking Israel's side. In other words, someone who has no experience in foreign policy had no idea what he should do or say in that meeting. The same report, which, to be fair, the White House has denied, suggested Trump was so frustrated with the outcome of the meeting, he was considering pulling out of the Mideast peace process altogether. So after one meeting run by essentially a child, Trump reportedly wants to give up. And honestly, as much as I want a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, maybe it's best we put things on hold until we get a president who has at least a ghost of a clue. That's not the only news affecting people in the Middle East this week, of course. The Supreme Court approved part of Trump's Muslim ban, which is another sign of how ugly the Supreme Court is going to be for years to come. And if you sat out the election or voted for, say, Jill Stein because you didn't like Hillary Clinton enough, please let me take this opportunity to offer you a hearty go-fuck-yourself. Trump's ban now says travelers from the specified countries can only visit if they have a, quote, bona fide relationship with someone in the United States, including refugees. So unless you have a spouse or a parent or a child in this country, you're out of luck. Your parents want to send you to live with your uncle or your grandmother here in the U.S. to escape, say, war-torn Syria? Too bad. That's not a close enough relationship. Remember, the whole purpose behind this Muslim ban 
isn't to keep us safe from terrorism. It wouldn't have kept out the 9-11 hijackers. It wouldn't keep out any of the homegrown terrorists we've seen since 2001. It doesn't make us the tiniest bit safer. But just like the stupid wall Trump fantasizes about building on the southern border, it might keep out some brown people. And that's the real reason it exists. I've been talking the last few weeks about Trump's decision to take sides in the dispute between several Gulf nations and Qatar, and how stupid and short-sighted that strategy has been. And this week, there was a story in, of all places, the American conservative, about how frustrating it has been for Secretary of Defense James Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to have to clean up after Trump again and again. And to be honest, they fail. The official White House policy is that Qatar is in the wrong and should give in to demands from the other Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia. You should read that story. You can find a link to the story, like all the stories in the podcast, on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. But I wanted to talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do about the subject. So I had a conversation with Akbar Shahid Ahmed, a foreign affairs correspondent at HuffPost. Check it out. On June 5th, uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, or the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and Egypt, and a few other countries, cut off ties with Qatar, which is a fellow Persian Gulf state. It's the home to the largest American military base in the Middle East, over 10,000 uh, U.S. soldiers. They allege that Qatar was supporting terrorism, including uh, affiliates of Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood group, which is some of those countries, this is a terrorist organization, the U.S. does not. Uh, and they said that Qatar was too close to Iran, which is a big rival of Saudi Arabia, the traditional U.S. partner in the Persian Gulf. Is that a credible accusation, what, what they said about uh, Qatar's tie to these terrorist groups? Certainly, private citizens in Qatar have been reprimanded for supporting um, violent militant extremist groups in Syria. Uh, so have private citizens in Saudi Arabia, for that matter, uh, and Kuwait, uh, and Bahrain, which is one of the countries blockading Qatar right now. The Iran accusation is a lot uh, less credible in terms of the UAE, one of the countries blockading Qatar, has far greater trade, about 10 times as much trade with Iran as Qatar does. So it appears to be far less about the allegations that these countries are making and far more about their desire to bring Qatar in line with their view of what should happen in the region. What have they asked uh, Qatar to do? Uh, last week, they submitted a list of 13 demands to Qatar on Thursday night and uh, Friday morning, Middle East time. They said Qatar had to uh, respond to all these demands and act on all of them by July 3rd, which is Monday. Um, they essentially asked Qatar to cut off all ties to uh, Iranian uh, Iranian military groups and Iranian-supported military groups like Hezbollah and Lebanon, groups that Qatar says it has no links to. They asked Qatar to shut down Al Jazeera, the Qatari state-funded media outlet, which is very popular across the Arab world. They told Qatar it has to send home any citizens of these various countries, Saudis, Emiratis, Bahrainis, Egyptians, who are currently living in Qatar. Uh, and they told Qatar that it must go through a review period during which its foreign policy will be reviewed every month by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, 
and uh, other countries to ensure that it's in line with their principles and their interests. And, and what was Qatar's response to that, th those requests? So Qatar spoke with Hafos the day after the requests were issued, and the Qatari ambassador to the U.S. gave the first public Qatari comment uh, on the list of demands to Hafos. What he said, Michelle Altani, a member of the royal family of Qatar, he said, look, clearly looking at this list of demands, it's not about terrorism or the allegations that the Saudis, the Emiratis, and others have leveled against us. It's clearly about Qatari sovereignty and their foreign policy. It's about media freedom in terms of Al Jazeera, again, the Qatari-funded media outlet, which is the most popular outlet in the Arab world. Uh, and, and since then, the Qataris have essentially said, this list is a non-starter. They've said that they are not going to negotiate away their foreign policy. They're happy to talk to Saudi Arabia and the other countries, but they're not willing to do so in a way that would inhibit them following a foreign policy they think is wise. So that lays the groundwork. And, and you know, this is a, I, I, my podcast is about Donald Trump. And what I really yeah. have been talking about for the last couple of weeks is Trump's involvement in this. So what was his initial reaction to this dispute? So President Trump um, has made three public comments about the dispute. The first two were on Twitter, his favorite medium, uh, during which President Trump essentially said that when he spoke with Saudi Arabia and various other U.S.-aligned Arab governments in the Persian Gulf during his visit to Saudi Arabia in late May, they said that Qatar was the major fund of terror around the world. He then repeated that message in the Rose Garden a few days later. And President Trump has essentially encouraged the side of the conflict, which is saying Qatar needs to, needs to capitulate. Now, that's very difficult for the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis to accept because the argument is, look, A, Qatar hosts more than 10,000 American troops and the basis for the fight against ISIS. And B, we don't accept the idea that Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other countries should dictate foreign policy to the USA, despite Donald Trump's appreciation for Saudi Arabia. He's essentially taken sides. And what impact has that had on the dispute? He's taken sides in a big way. And, and it appears from recent reporting, I haven't been able to confirm this independently, recent reporting suggests that he remains on the side of the Saudis, the UAE, and others. What that does is it, it tells, it, it sends really two messages. It says, A, um, the U.S. government is not a coherent institution, so whatever Tillerson and Mattis and other foreign policy professionals are doing is irrelevant because the president does not agree with that. And B, what it does is it, it creates hard lines on both sides because the Saudis and the UAE are thinking, well, Trump is on our side. And it's important to remember the UAE ambassador to the U.S., uh, Yusuf Al-Teba, someone Hafez has written about extensively, is very close to Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and a top White House advisor. Oteba is thought to have influenced Kushner's thinking on the region a great deal. Um, so there's a lot of kind of stubbornness on the Saudi and the UAE side saying, look, we have Trump eating out of the palm of our hand. Why would we give in? And on the other hand, the Qataris say, well, the Department of Defense, Department of State think that we are correct and they don't want to see conflict between U.S. partners in this critically important region, they're on our side. So it, it looks like Trump's move has basically prolonged the conflict, which prolongs human suffering in Qatar, but also makes greater tensions in the Middle East, 
already not a very peaceful region, um, just inevitable. Qatar is one of our, our sort of stronger allies, right? I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times the, the base there, and we, we base a lot of operations out of, of Qatar. So how does this affect our own military's ability to fight the, you know, fight multiple wars in Afghanistan and, and Syria and Iraq. How, how can we fight on these fronts? What, what happens if our ability to, to work with Qatar goes away? Qatar has tried to play a very mediatory role. They have tried to emphasize that cooperation with the U.S. and that partnership with the U.S. in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, etc. Uh, it's the other countries, actually, the anti-Qatar countries, that have been more clear in um, really forcing the U.S. to incur costs for what they see as Qatar's misbehavior. So, for instance, Bahrain, which is the home of the U.S. naval base in the Middle East, has reportedly expelled Qatari officials from the Bahraini naval base. Uh, that's a base that the U.S. you know uses to liaise with the Qataris for important missions like the fighting on ISIS. It's definitely an impairment, uh, and we saw this week someone in Trump's own party, Senator Bob Corker, the chairman of the very powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, expressed concern over that. Uh, Corker wrote to Tillerson, Secretary of State, saying, look, I'm not going to agree to any arms sales to Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or any of the other countries involved until you tell me that you have a way forward. And that's a huge cost, because Trump has really said arms sales are a big part of his America First policy. And if that's not possible, uh, it, it looks like a crisis that the Trump administration has no response to or no policy towards. I think a critical thing just to mention would be that there have been such conflicting signals, uh, not just from Tillerson at the State Department, but also from, from Mattis. So there's been a U.S. joint naval exercise with Qatar. There's been the approval of a $12 billion fighter jet sailed to Qatar. The U.S. is essentially saying through its agencies, we believe that Qatar is an important ally, and President Trump is not saying that. The question is who weighs in, and because we have no answer on that from the U.S. side, the tensions in the Middle East are only likely to get worse. Guys, I don't know if you know this about our current president, but he is a sensitive flower, a delicate human being. He does not like being insulted, and it is very, very important to him that you know all about his accomplishments, which is why he very proudly displayed a cover of Time magazine featuring his photo on the walls of not one, not two, but five of his private clubs. Had a big photo of him, along with headlines like, Donald Trump, The Apprentice is a television smash, and Trump is hitting on all fronts, even TV, which sound like really realistic headlines on a magazine. Of course, the cover was fake. The funny thing is Donald Trump has been on lots of magazine covers throughout his life. He's pretty famous, and he's always been very, very good at getting his name in the press, even if he has to pretend to be his own PR spokesman and lie about his sex life. But he still has to make things up constantly. The magazine covers have been taken down. That's it for another week with a pair of tiny hands and an even tinier heart serving as your President of the United States. 
I want to thank Akbar Shahid Ahmed for coming on the podcast to break down a very complicated dispute in the Gulf for me. If you learned something new in this week's podcast, or if it made you think of an issue in a new way, why not help me keep it running? Go to patreon.com slash the Trump scorecard. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the Trump scorecard and make a pledge. I can't do this without listener support. Remember, you can find links to all the stories I talk about in the podcast on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org, and I'd love to hear from you. Find me on Twitter, at Jesse Burney. Like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard, or send me an email, thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. But I was helping. You did a good job. Right. Try, Izzy. You did a good job interrupting me, thanks. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal.